looking at plants and we divided the plants into four groups. Okay, so when you're looking at the classification of plants, you have four different types of, of plants. We had the, the bryophytes, which were non-vascular plants. They included the mosses, especially. That's what we looked at closely. Then we had the seedless vascular plants. Uh, primarily, we looked at ferns in that group, but there are some other plants in there as well. Okay, and the difference there is that they have vascular tissue. Okay, so we're looking at, as you go through this, you're looking at structural differences in the plants. Uh, bryophytes do not have any specialized tissues for movement of fluids. That restricts their life, how they can live. They also require water for fertilization, for sperm to swim. Okay, when we get to seedless vascular plants, still need the water for fertilization. Uh, but now they have vascular tissue, which enables them to be larger, enables them to conduct water up, up in the air, which water doesn't want to go all by itself. So that allows them to do that. So that, that specialized tissue allows that to occur. Okay. Then we got to the seed plants. So that's a, another structural difference, the production of seeds. Now they're divided into two groups. The gymnosperms, which we looked at last time, which produce those seeds in cones okay, uh, of, of some sort. We're used to the hard woody type, but not all of them are like that. Uh, and because of that, uh, they had uh, all of the others following the alternation of generations had only one type of spore produced. Okay, mosses produce one kind of spore, and, and it grows up to be you know, a mature gametophyte. Just that's what spores do. If you're a spore, you're going to grow up to be a gametophyte. You don't get a choice. That's what you do. Okay. All right. And so that happened for mosses and for ferns. And the gametophyte had, was both, had both male and female uh, parts to it, and uh, produced a sperm, which swim to the egg, and okay, you get fertilization. You're back to being a diploid. You're, you're now a diploid plant, uh, which is the sporophyte generation, because a zygote, a fertilized egg, is going to grow up to be a sporophyte. That's no, no, uh, again, no options. Sporophytes produce spores, gametophytes produce gametes. And sporophytes are diploid, gametophytes are haploid. Okay. All right, now when we got to the seed plants, we had to, to produce two different kinds of spores because we had separate male and gametophyte plants. And the male gametophyte is what we see as pollen, okay? And there's a microspore that grows up to be a male gametophyte. And then there's a megaspore, which grows up to be the female gametophyte, which in a cone is embedded down inside the cone. And you, in lab, you would have looked at slides of that and seen where it was in the cone, okay? Um, and then the pollen gets there well, for gymnosperms, primarily by wind, okay? Uh, but no water required anymore. Then we get to the angiosperms. The angiosperms uh, produce seeds. They have two kinds of spores, just like the gymnosperms do, but they have added on top of that the production of flowers and fruit. That's, and those are new structures that plants are producing. And the advantage uh, that that has apparently given is that it attracts pollinators. Okay, so pollination 
which is different than fertilization. Pollination is just getting the pollen to the right spot. And then you have to have, it, then it grows down to where the egg is and you actually get fertilization. Pollination uh, with wind is a chancy affair. You just throw pollen out there and you hope it goes where you want it to go. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't work so good. And, but if you, uh, and, and you're also producing a lot of pollen. This uses energy. This uses nutrients and energy to produce all that pollen. What the angiosperms have done with the development of flowers is they have found a way to bribe animals to move the pollen for them. Now, not all do. There are still some angiosperms that use wind for pollination. Uh, grass. Okay, grasses. Have you ever seen flowers on grass? Well, they're there. You just don't notice them because they're little tiny green things because they don't have to attract a pollinator because they're using the wind. That's why if you're allergic to, uh, to some of the pollens, it's often it's a grass pollen because there's a lot of it. They got the same problem the pine trees do. You've got to produce a lot of pollen. And that's what grasses do. Uh, corn. You've seen the tassels on the top of corn. Okay, that's producing pollen that's spread out in the in, in the air. Because okay, corn is just a, a big grass. Okay, uh, essentially. Uh, uh, in fact, almost everything we eat that's a, a grain is a grass. Rice is a grass. Wheat, rye, uh, rye corn, uh, oats. All of those are, are just grasses of one kind or another. That humans have bread to produce the kind of seeds that we want from them, that we can use as food. Okay. Now, but the other way that, that angiosperms do this is, all right, we're going to put up a big billboard here and say, come here, and I'm going to and, and attract insects or other animals to come to the plant. And they're going to, get, they're going to manipulate those animals to do the pollination for them. And they manipulate them by providing food. Okay, the flower provides some kind of food. Uh, uh, usually, it's nectar, which is a really rich, sugary substance. Uh, lots of uh, animals feed on that. That's their primary food. Uh, they'll also eat a little bit of the pollen, but there's enough pollen there that it won't matter. And then hopefully they'll go if they were satisfied. They liked what they got at this flower. They're going to go to another flower of the same species because, you know, that, that worked really well. I'm happy with that. I'm going to go to I'm going to look for another flower of the same species, and they'll transfer the pollen from flower to flower, totally unwittingly. They have no idea that's what they're doing. It's just why? Because they're being manipulated by the plants to do that. Okay. So, um, ninety percent of all plant species are flowering plants, and these are just some examples of flowers. Uh, most of these, uh, some of these you've seen. Uh, here's one that obviously attracts uh, hummingbirds. Uh, if you've seen cattails, this essentially is a flower. Uh, this is a, an enlargement of a grass flower. Okay. Here's a group of daisies and varieties. This is a passion fruit flower. Uh, these, are these are maple flowers, maple trees flower. Okay. In the spring, before the leaves come out, You'll see uh, the, the tips of all the branches on the maples turn red. And these are little little red flowers. And they're, you know, they're, they're producing pollen and attracting, hopefully, some early early bees. And, you know, and, they, and that's how they do. Uh, of course, uh, so there's a variety of ways of doing that. Okay? 
So this just gives you the number of uh, groups of plants, and you can see that flowering plants greatly outnumber any of the other groups of plants. Very successful group. So uh, again, same kind of life cycle. Um, we'll look at the life cycle here in just a minute. One thing that is new, and I'm going to come back to this. Let's look. At, I want to look at life cycle first. Okay, same life cycle as before. Alternation of generations. Okay, except that you never see the gametophyte. You don't. You never see it in the uh, uh, unless you see pollen. You, you would never see any of the, the gametophyte because it's embedded down inside the flower. Okay, so uh, this is showing you the two parts of this. So uh, here, is, is, this is where all of this happens. On the anthers, which are these structures here, inside of here, there's a pollen sac. There's a microspore mother cell, goes through meiosis, produces haploid microspores. Each microspore becomes a male gametophyte, and they're active inside the essentially pollen grains. Down inside the flower, in the ovary, in each ovule, there's a megaspore mother cell. This goes through meiosis, just like that's what, that's what uh, you know, they do to produce a spore. Um, and it produces four haploid spores. Under meiosis, you get four cells as a result. Uh, there's some cell division. You end up with about... You end up with about seven cells. This is all you have from the female gametophyte. It still exists, but that's all there is to it. And what it will do then is by mitosis produce an egg cell, which can then be fertilized by the pollen. So it's the same basic process, alternation of generations that we see in all the other plants. Right. Now, something that is unique. One of the unique things here is, and this is only in angiosperms, is something called double fertilization. In all the others, there's, a, there's the egg and there's a single nucleus from the pollen or from the little sperm cell that merges with that, fuses with that to form a, 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 a sporophyte, a new sporophyte plant. Okay. Here, when the little tube grows from the pollen, down into the ovule, this is in the case of here's my egg cell here. This is all there is to get that gametophyte that's produced an egg cell. One of these, uh, there are two what they call sperm nuclei, they're like little sperm cells. One of these will fuse with the egg to make the new little sporophyte plant turn into a little embryo. And the other these two cells in the middle here to form a triploid cell that is where, and that cell will produce the nutrients that will be stored in the seed for the embryo. It's called endosperm. Okay, when you're eating corn or you're eating beans or you're eating, you know, any of these, the primary reason we are eating them is because we're eating the stored nutrients sporophyte embryo. Now you're also getting a little sporophyte embryo too on most of these. Uh, but the bulk of the reason we're eating them, where the nutrition is, is in the endosperm that was produced. And that comes from that cell there in the that the two cells in the middle that fuse with the second sperm nucleus to form a triploid tissue. 
not something you see very often. It's unique to this group of, of, of plants. Now, after that happens, inside here, in this ovule, this, uh, we're going to get the formation of some food. And ultimately, this will become the wall of this around the ovary will become a fruit, and this structure will become the seed in the middle. So when you're eating an apple, for instance, the seeds are down in the middle, and if you cut down in there, the kind of papery stuff around them, it's dividing it into ovules, there's a seed in each ovule. And all of the outer part of the apple that you're eating is the wall of the ovary of that, of that flower. And that's what fruits are. Fruits are the wall of the ovary, or mostly the wall of the ovary of the flower. Now, uh, so that's a new uh, thing for angiosperms as well. They're the only plants that produce fruit. Now, fruit is not for us, okay? Well, I mean, it sort of ends up that way because we breed the plants to have fruit that we like, uh, you know, that's sweet, and, you know, and all of that. But the purpose of the fruit is to attract animals again, okay? It's not much help to the plant if the seeds fall directly under the plant that they came from, because then the new seedlings have to compete with each other and with the adult, you know, the original plant. What you want to do is disperse those seeds out, okay? So the fruit is a mechanism to get animals to eat the fruit, and then the seeds do not, are, are resistant to the digestive enzymes, and then they scatter the seeds around the countryside. That's what deer do. Deer eat apples. Deer love apples. Uh, and then they scatter the seeds all over the place. Yeah, with fertilizer, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but so plants, uh, we, 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 you know, flowers and fruits are there, are plants' way of manipulating animals to do what they, what, what they need to have done. Now, we, of course, have adapted those things for ourselves. And we breed plants to have fruits that we like, okay, rather than, obviously, you know, if you've ever seen, you know, crab apples are no different than regular apples, except they, they're bitter and they don't taste very good, and usually we don't eat them, okay. Uh, the original corn that we, we think, the, what became corn later, uh, teosinte, what it's referred to as, the little, the kernels are little tiny kernels, and they're rock hard. We're not going to eat that. Well, we could grind it, I guess, and use it, but we're not going to eat that. We have bred corn to have what you see as the familiar corn in the fields around here in the summer. Uh, but they had to have the fruit and the uh, and the seed. So structurally, now when we get to the angiosperms, we have double fertilization. That's different. We have uh, uh, fruits produced and flowers. Flowers are there to attract insects and get them to unwittingly spread the pollen. Fruits are there to attract animals. I mean, squirrels, I've got, well, most of my yard is, is trees, and we've got a few oak trees, and the squirrels are out there in the fall, and they're busily burying acorns all over the place, and they won't find them all. They'll find most of them if they get a bad winter, but they won't find all of them. Those are gonna, those are, some of those will germinate, and you get little oak trees. 
I mean, that's, now, maple trees different. Maple trees, the little helicopter things, they're using the wind to spread those seeds. Still have flowers out for, for pollination, but they're using the wind to do that. So there are some angiosperms that still use the wind for both pollination and to distribute their seeds, but uh, the bulk of them are using animals to do that. Okay, so here's a kind of a little table that shows some of the differences between all of these. Uh, and so you can see this uh, bryophytes don't they have swimming sperm? Yes, they don't have any of those other things. Seedless vascular, swimming sperm, vascular tissue, none of this. And then gymnosperms, uh, here we have no swimming sperm anymore because we have pollen. Pollen takes the place of that. It allows you to pollinate in dry conditions. Right? And so you can see what's here. And then of course angiosperms have flowers. And so that's just a quick look at the different types of plants. It's not exhaustive by any means, but it's a, it's a quick look at the four basic types of plants, how they follow the alternation of generations, life cycle, and so on. Now, not all plants are photos, uh, well, do their own work. Um, I've got a, I want to look at a little video here. Um, some plants are, uh, instead of, they may even have some green leaves, but they are parasites, on, usually on other plants. Uh, daughter is one, and we've got a little video here about that. Uh, and there's a couple of others. These are the germinating seeds of daughter. They have to find their host within a few days, or they will die. A favorite target is the nettle. Well armed with stings it may be, but they are no defense against Donna. Seedlings can detect whether a nettle stem is feeble or well nourished, and they pick their victim with care. This is a strong, healthy one, good to feed on. In goes a nozzle. Plants do have motion. They do respond to environment. Whether the feeding seems good, the 
parasite inserts a tube and draws off the metal sac. is parasitic. Uh, other parasitic plants I think I mentioned in here is mistletoe. Uh, you, again, you can see mistletoe very clearly right now because there's no regular leaves on most of the trees, but oak trees especially. You'll see up in the oak trees, little areas where they have like little leafy structures up there. Uh, these, this is uh, mistletoe. Now the mistletoe here has green leaves, so it does do some photosynthesis on its own. It does not harm the tree that much. Out in the west, there is a type of mistletoe that has no green leaves. It gets all its nutrients from what it could take from the host tree. And uh, it, it uh, infects primarily, or I guess infects is a good word here, uh, uh, pine trees. Out in uh, Colorado, that's a ponderosa pine, is the most common pine. And there will be areas that are, that are infested with this stuff. But uh, there's not much you can do about that. Now, the other th uh, interesting thing that some plants uh, is that um, they, um, see, this will work. Uh, again, you can see that some plants are going to function. Some plants, or most plants, get their nutrients from the soil. Okay? Now, all soils are not equal. Some soils are very rich in nutrients, some soils do not have a lot of nutrients. And in particular, Wetland soils, because they're wet, tend not to decompose quickly or material because there's not much oxygen down in the soil. It's been replaced by water. And so in these areas, the soil is not rich at all, and it's particularly lacking in nitrogen. And so some plants have instead of... The soil 
in this water. So what these plants are going to do is they're going to supplement their what they get from the, the uh, from their roots by eating something that's a rich nitrogen source, which is going to be an animal. Okay, and we have uh, plants that uh, actually trap and feed on animals. This is one of them here. Oh, it's very cool. Oh, in nitrogen. But these strange plants have an ingenious strategy. Their leaves are covered in tentacles, tinkle droplets of what appears to be morning dew. These droplets give the plant its name, the sun dew. They're sweet smelling and attractive to many insects. But they're also extremely sticky. Mosquitoes emerge in huge numbers from the bottom water, and some dews are ready. The pupil stage of the uh, of, of mosquitoes is in the water, and so as they come out of that, they have to climb out on the surface of the water. It's really fascinating. Uh, it's really pretty amazing uh, what they do. We, of course, aren't overly thrilled with mosquitoes, but... Um, So that's, that's one, of course, you've probably all heard of being fly traps. Uh, those are, are really pretty common uh, down in North Carolina. A lot of these uh, carnivorous plants are common in North Carolina. Uh, it's, it's illegal to, uh, to dig them up down there. They're protected uh, in most places because they're not, I mean, they don't find a lot of them, but they're, North Carolina has, has these. Because they have a lot of boggy, I don't know if you've been down in the eastern part of North Carolina, it's, more water than there is land down in that area. It's kind of like a little bit around here. Uh, if you take the train, if you ever take the train from here north up to Richmond, you go up along the peninsula, you look out the window of the train, and you're going to see water everywhere. There are swamps and bogs, and it's all over the place along the peninsula. You just don't see them because people don't build their houses there and the roads don't go there, but the train goes through there, and you can see how much water there is around here. Uh, uh, it's Part of why I guess we have a lot of insects. Um, now, uh, <clears throat> so this is another one. I don't think the quality of this one is quite as good. But this is just another carnivorous plant. 
WD. I've had moderate to severe flash psoriasis most of my life. That hasn't stopped me from love. And causes of twitchy plants are in Southeast Asia. There are 76 different species of them, 30 of which grow only on the island of Borneo. You may include the biggest of them all, truly spectacular plant, appropriately called the Pentevrata. That grows only on this great mountain, Kilimanjaro, and there all around. I guess this one contains two or three pints only. It's so big that it catches not just insects, but even small rodents. One was recorded that had in it the body of a brown rat. So if ever there was a carnivore in the plants, this is it. The traps of this Asian family of bitter plants are once again modified leaves. But they're not simply folded into a tube. The process is more complex. A sheet appears that looks just the same as those that turn into normal leaves. Over a period of several days, flanges develop near the end and open out to form the blade of a leaf. But then the tip of the midrib continues to grow. Some of the bigger species may produce half a dozen or so of these huge, elegant traps. Side effects are interesting. Now, these surfaces around here. Right just inside, they will have, they will uh, secrete sugary droplets, uh, you know, 
sweet droplets. And the, there are little hairs in there, but all the hairs point down into the, into the tube. So <clears throat> a, 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 an ant, for instance, might come up along the edge get, to try to get some of that sweet material. If it, and it's also very slippery. It starts to slide down inside. The hairs prevent them from climbing back out, and eventually they fall into the water, and then they drown, and they're decomposed down there in the water. Uh, there are, as I said, these are quite large. Most of the ones in the United States are not, not this large at all. Uh, but that, you know, and so ants and uh, beetles and things like that are their primary victims, uh, at least the ones that are here. Uh, and they grow in a lot of places in the United States. I've, I've seen them in Maine, and I know they're down in North Carolina. There's probably some in Virginia. We knew that they were. Uh, so they're, they're, again, carnivorous plants. What they're doing is living in soils that are not as rich as they need, and they're supplementing their diet basically by getting the nitrogen from, from animals. Okay, so um, we said that flowers provide a reward. Not always. Uh, some of them are a little trickier than that. I'm Carrie D. I've had moderate to severe plant psoriasis most of my life. That hasn't stopped me. Some plants, however, do not give their pollinators any reward of any kind. In the warmer parts of Europe, there's a whole group that bamboozle their pollinators into thinking that they're going to get a really sensational reward. A sexual their little orchids and their flowers reproduce remarkably closely the signals that enable a male bee or wasp to recognize a female of the same species. Several have blue patches. One is fringed with what looks like fur. A wasp's wings in the right light do flash iridescent blue and its abdomen is covered with thick brown fur. A female wasp also pumps out an identifying perfume, but the orchid does the same, and the result is irresistible. As the male wasp nuzzles forward in his attempt to mate, he bucks the pollinia which stick to him like yellow horn. That's where the pollen is. And they apparently don't learn quickly, so they go from flower to flower. He seems to be well aware that something has happened to him, but there's nothing he can do about it, and he flies off to try his luck. Which, of course, is what the orchid requires, because this time he deposits the pollen on another bogus female. The hairs on many of these orchids run downwards, as though the female is sitting with her head up. But some reproduce her clinging head down, and then the male must land that way if he wants to make will get the pollen stuck to his rear.
one too seems fully aware that he's got rather more than he bargained for. The orchid's mimicry is so convincing and enticing that sometimes a flower will attract a whole scrum of sex-crazed suitors. Some are trying to get to the orchid and will inadvertently deliver the pollen. Other males, since there seems to be a full house, attempt to mate with one another. Okay, so while we say that, and this is just a different example, of how flowers or how plants can manipulate animals, okay? Uh, and that's not that uncommon. Orchids are the group that does this the most. Uh, in, the, in the tropical orchids also. There is a world that's been out of reach until now. It goes on to another one. Look at later. Uh, but at any rate, they, uh, I just want to give you a feel for the fa of the diversity in flowers. And, and in flowering plants, and the ways that they can manipulate animals, uh, either by food or by offering a mate, or and even in a patch of flowers, it has been discovered that if you take a large patch of flowers and you look to see how much nectar each one has, there will be some in the middle that don't have any nectar, but they're going to get visited anyway because all the other ones around them have nectar. They're kind of cheating the system. We don't know how they do that or how they know it. Is it just random? We don't know. But we know that it happens. So flowers, plants, much more dynamic than we tend to, to think they are. Okay. And the nice thing about studying plants is they never run away. Okay. So like your, you know, your specimen never takes off and goes somewhere else. They, they pretty much stay where they are. All right. So. Um, Um, all right, so we're going to look at uh, fungi next. We'll start with a little. Okay, so now fungi are the, the next kingdom that we're going to look at. Problem on YouTube that gets messed up.
From such apparitions as these come spores, the fungal equivalent of seeds. They are so small that they drift away like smoke. But the appearance of these spectacular constructions is brief. As soon as their spores have been shed, sometimes after only a few days, they collapse. Now they are merely food for maggots. Fungi actually grow very quickly, as you saw in the video. Uh, that was time lapse, of course. But most fungi that you see uh, around here uh, will essentially come up out of the ground overnight, uh, and they very, very, very rapid growth when they, when they grow. The part that you see is a reproductive structure. It is not the growing part of the fungus, and that's what we're going to kind of look at. So we're going to look at characteristics of fungi. Why do we put them in a separate group? Uh, we're going to look at what the fungus, what the parts of a fungus are, uh, how they're classified into, into groups, and then a little bit about symbiotic relationships that they form with other, other things. Now, so these are heterotrophic organisms. That means they uh, cannot make their own food. They have to get organic molecules from their environment. Now, most fungi uh, feed on things that are dead and de uh, well, I would say decaying, but it, the, the process of decay is in part what the fungi are doing to them. Okay, they're gradually using the nutrients, and, and we call that, when we see that, we say it's decaying or it's rotting. But what's really happening is that fungi and bacteria are using the nutrients of, a, of an organism that's dead. Now, so majority of these from non-living. Okay, so uh, you know, all the leaves that fell them, this uh, last fall, though most of those will be eaten by eventually by by fungi, um, and, and uh, dead wood that's down, uh, you'll see uh, fungi growing on that. Uh, so the majority of them do that. There are a few that are parasitic, okay, and uh, some on humans, most on insects actually, and then some that form a mutualistic relationship, symbiotic relationships. Now. <clears throat> There are two things that we talk about in their growth. This part up here, which is you know, a typical mushroom, where you know, oh, yeah, I know what that is, that's a mushroom. This is simply for reproduction. The growing part of the plant is down in the soil or down in the wood, whatever it's growing on. And it consists of individual, one cell wide little strands called a hypha. And they, they grow by adding to the tip and they keep on growing through essentially their food source. Now, you can't see a single hypha by itself without a microscope because they're only one cell wide. You can't see things that are that small. But when you get a bunch of them together, and sometimes if you move a rotting log, you'll see underneath it, there'll be this kind of silvery network of, of little uh, strands. When we get enough hypha in one place, then we call it a mycelium. 
We get a bunch of them together and we can see them, and that's referred to as a mycelium. This is the what we would call the vegetative part of the fungus, the, the growing part, okay? The part that is getting nutrients and, and, and growing. Um, the mushroom in this case is simply the reproductive structure. Down there on the bottom where you see the bread mold, the moldy part that you see on top, those are just reproductive structures. The hyphae, mycelium, are in the bread, growing through the bread, because that's where the nutrients are. Okay? Uh, not, so they don't have roots, but they do have a, a hypha. Uh, branching cells, they do branch, but they're single little tubular structures. Their cell walls are composed, and they have cell walls. We, we tend to think, uh, you know, that, well, in my micro class, everybody thinks bacteria have cell walls and nobody else does, but that's not the case. Uh, plants have cell walls, and fungi have cell walls. Animals are the only ones with no cell walls. Um, you know, that's for, for the most part. They are composed of a substance, or the strengthening unit is composed of chitin. Now, chitin is something we normally associate with animals. Insects and crustaceans uh, use chitin as part of their external skeleton. Okay? Fungi use chitin for the cell walls around each individual cell. That's the strengthening that makes that cell wall. And that's, uh, that presence in cell walls is unique to the fungi. Okay, so they are heterotrophic. Most of them are saprophes, meaning they feed on dead material. They have chitin in their cell walls. They, have, they grow by means of hyphae and mycelia. That's unique to this group as well. Normally you don't see that part of it because it's down in the food source, whatever it is. What you see is the reproductive structures there is when they've gotten enough nutrients. So when your bread turns all fuzzy, that means it's, it's happy and reproducing. Okay. So the mycelium or the hypha, they grow toward a, a food source. Uh, the tips of them secrete digestive enzymes. Now. Here's, uh, they have no mouths, okay, so how do they get, how do they digest their nutrients? Well, they simply dump enzymes into the environment, let those enzymes break down the material, and then they absorb the nutrients. When we see that happening, we say something's rotting. It's over a bad thing. Well, it might be, depending on what it is, but for the most part, What's happening is the fungi are simply digesting it away and absorbing the nutrients. And of course, they can't move. The whole fungus can't pick up and go somewhere else. And they're going to absorb all the nutrients that are available in that immediate area. And so what they do is they simply continue to grow into new areas where there's more food. Okay? And they just keep doing that. So they secrete the enzymes, they break it down, and then the hyphae absorb the nutrients from around them. Now, reproduction is by means of spores. No such things as seeds. We don't even call anything here an egg exactly. Uh, they produce spores. Uh, they do both sexual and asexual reproduction. And in fact, the reproductive structures are, for the most part, how we group them into different groups of fungi. We'll look at that. Spores can resist, as you can see, dehydration. They remain dormant until the for a long time until conditions are favorable, and they could be produced either way. So the type of sexual structure 
and spore that is produced is how we group these fungi into what are going to be basically about five different groups. And we'll go through those. Now, they're really important uh, in ecosystems because they decompose. You know, when stuff dies, all those materials can be recycled. But somebody's got to break it all down and recycle and do the recycling. And that's one of the functions of fungi. Uh, a lot of bacteria do that too. Okay. But we'd be up to, you know, here and dead stuff out there if there wasn't something breaking it down all the time. Okay. And so that's what, that's what the fungi specialize in. They do form symbiotic relationships, which we'll talk about at the very end of this. Some of them are pathogens. Okay. Have anybody here ever had athlete's foot? Yeah, that's, that's a fungal. There's a fungus that's not going to wait until you're dead. Okay, they don't care if they're dead or not. We're going to we're going to work on it. Now there are some other fungal diseases. Uh, fortunately, in the temperate zones, there are not a lot of them. They're fairly rare here, uh, but there are some. Uh, uh, and we'll we'll kind of get into some of them as we go. Well, the yeast could be yeast is a there are many different species of yeast. And, and yeast can be a pathogen as well. Okay, mostly in women, but rarely in men. Uh, you, get, you can get the vaginal yeast infections. Okay, uh, there is uh, a couple of them that are cause lung, you know, cause problems with the lungs. You inhale the spores, and they actually grow in the lungs. Uh, the problem with fungi as as pathogens is that their cells are the closest to animal cells of any of the other groups closest to being the same as animal cells. And that means it's very hard to find drugs that will inhibit their growth without having side effects on the host cells. So if you are, unless it's a topical thing like athlete's foot, you can put stuff on the outside that you would never take internally. Um, you uh, end up usually being on medication for a, an extended time period, usually some a period of months to get rid of fungal, internal fungal infection. Okay, the other downside, of course, is they spoil food supplies. Um, of course, they're happy about that, but, we, but we're not. Um, and we use them in manufacturing a lot of things. Uh, we use them to make antibiotics. All the original antibiotics came from fungi. And we'll get into some of that later. You know, penicillin, for instance, right? and it comes from a fungus. Um, and, of course, we use them to make cheeses. Uh, blue cheese or Roker cheese, or Gorgonzola, any of those cheeses that have the blue veining like in them, that's a mold that's in there. It's part of what gives them the flavor. So they, they do have roles for us. And of course, yeast is a, is a fungus, and we use yeast for a lot of things. Okay. And we'll get to that. Okay, so this is, uh, we're gonna break them into these groups here. Uh, and uh, fungi, as you'll notice on the little tree here, are the closest to the animals. We have the closest relationship to them than any of the others. Again, that makes them a more difficult pathogen to deal with. All right, so the first group that we're going to mention are what are called the imperfect fungi, uh, which is not really a fair name. These are, remember I said we classify them by the kind of sexual reproductive structures they form. If we have never seen them reproduce sexually, then we don't know where to put them. Or maybe they don't ever do that. We don't know. If that's the case, they're put into this group called the imperfect fungi. 
or fungi imperfecta. I've, I've seen it done like that. Basically, they've just never been observed to have a sexual reproductive phase. Uh, they reproduce asexually. Those structures you see up there, those are called conidia. You've sort of seen those in lab. Um, and this is this little strand out here. This is a hypha. That's what these are. These are hyphae. And out at the tip here, it's forming spores. These will be released into the environment. These are asexually formed. There is a predatory fungus that likes to catch little worms. Uh, now, nematode worms are very tiny. They're microscopic. You might have seen one when you looked at pond water sometime in the lab, little wiggly guys going back and forth like this. Uh, they're, they're quite tiny. There is a fungus that specializes in those, and it forms little loops. And when the fungus, or when the uh, worm, just by accident gets inside that loop, it tightens on them so they can't get away, and then they grow hyphae into the body of the, of the worm and digest it. So there are some fungi that are, are sexually predators in that respect. Uh, some of the species of candida, which are, uh, which is the uh, pathogenic yeast species, uh, are still in this group. And, and penicillium is in some of the species of penicillium. Now penicillium is, multi, is a genus name. So there are many species of penicillium. Uh, they don't all produce penicillin, but uh, fortunately for us, uh, some of them do. Although today there's a lot of bacteria that are resistant to penicillin. It still works on some of them. It still works very well. Okay. Now, another group are called the, uh, the chytrids. These are, uh, it says, an ancient lineage. All right. These are all parasites. They live inside of the cells, uh, mostly of animals. Uh, they uh, live uh, only in aquatic environments. They don't affect us any. But they uh, are unique in that their spores have a flagellum on it. And when those spores can actually swim through the water. None of the other groups have that. Okay, this is unique of this group, is that flagellated spore. Okay. Now, Chytrids are the fungi that are implicated in the decline of amphibians. Okay, they infect the skin of amphibians. Um, and we know that in the rainforest, this particular chytrid uh, species does by contact. Um, sometimes, you know, as it says, 58% of the individuals can disappear within one year when this starts. There is no fixed method of control, but they are working on that. And here's what it does. Remember, amphibians breathe through their skin. Uh, okay? They're, if you've ever touched a frog, they're, they're, they're moist and, and their skin is very thin. They, they get much of their oxygen through the skin. What happens is the fungus gets in there and it, it affects their ability to regulate the transport of oxygen through the skin, uh, and, which is a large part of their respiratory surface, and that eventually kills them. For a long time, it was thought that the decline in amphibians was entirely uh, due to pollutants. And while that may not be helping any, it turns out that these, this fungus is the, the primary cause, as far as we can tell right now. Of course, new information may tell you something different. Okay. Next group are the zygomycetes. All right, yeah, so what's, uh, they don't make up very many, but you're familiar with them because rhizopus 
is uh, the common bread mold. And if you live in Virginia, you've probably seen bread mold. Uh, you know, bread will mold here pretty quickly, particularly if you buy uh, bread that's been made, baked without uh, preservatives in it. It does not last very long. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, most of these are saprophytes. Uh, a few are parasites. They are often found in the soil. Uh, compost would have, they'd be in compost piles. And, and they do grow on our, on our food, which is uh, a bit of a problem uh, for us. Uh, but that's, uh, the, the fuzzy part that you see on that bread is all reproductive structures. Now, what makes them unique? Okay, that's what we're all looked at. In their reproductive cycle, um, they will, spores will land on a food source, in this case, a bagel, apparently, in the diagram. And they will grow, and when they start to get enough nutrients, they will start to send little stalks up, asexually, and these little stalks will have little spores all over the tops of them which is what you see when you see the fuzzy stuff on there. That's kind of what you're seeing is the tops of all these little spores that's coming up out of the bread. Um, eventually, if there are two different mating types, a plus and minus, it's hard for us to tell the difference, but they can. I guess it don't matter. Uh, they will, they, when they grow near each other, they will form, they'll grow toward each other and two haploid nuclei, these are normally haploid, will fuse right here in the middle, forming what's called a zygote, right? To make fertilized, you know, fertilization, essentially. And this is a, immediately produces spores, referred to as a zygospore. These are the zygomycetes. Any fungus that produces this type of a spore case is put in. That's how that how it's decided, and then those spores go you know go off and land wherever. And, and again, uh, the air right now that you're reading is full of fungal spores. And, you know, some of you may be allergic to mold. Right now, at this time of year, when it's cold and relatively dry, there's not so many of them around. Uh, probably more indoors than outdoors. In the spring, when it gets warm and it gets moist out there. Uh, then, you know, one of the things they report is, is the, the, the level of mold and spores in the air. They don't call them spores, they just say mold index or something like that. But, but that's what they're talking about. Uh, and so this is their basic life cycle of the zygomyces. But this zygospore, again, you should have looked at seen one of these in lab, uh, is the, uh, the signature structure for this group. Now, remember I said that the, the hyphae grow through the bread. So if you uh, if you uh, look at some bread and you see some dark blue or black stuff on it, okay, you know that it's reproducing. The hyphae were in that bread yesterday, even though you didn't see any reproductive structures yet. Now, there's no reason you can't eat most fungus. There are some that are poisonous, some mushrooms, but uh, it doesn't harm you, apparently. I would eat it once it starts reproducing, and most people wouldn't at that point. But there were probably hyphae growing in the bread for a day or so, at least before you actually begin to see the results. And, you know, we would just eat it. We wouldn't, we wouldn't know the difference. It's one of those things, if you don't know about it, it doesn't matter so much. All right. Now, some uh, of these guys will 
actually launch their spores rather than uh, using the wind as they implied in the video. Uh, and and Hylobolus is one of those. Now, this particular fungus grows in cow patties. Now, I don't know how many of you have been around uh, cows in a pasture. Cows are very inefficient digesters of their food, and they leave cow fats all over the, the field. Uh, this fungus grows in that. They, they, were in the, uh, they were in the cow, and the first one, you know, the cow fat gets dropped. Uh, they grow in that. But now they have to get into another cow. This is a problem because other cows will not graze near the cow fat. They're going to stay away from that area. And so these spores have to get themselves away from that area and out into the grass where the cows are feeding. And they have a unique, what they call, a little spore cannon to do that. by the way, is uh, the uh, Anvil Chorus from uh, Verdi's opera Il Trovatore. Um, and these are guys, and they actually usually have animals. They're pounding on one. Here at Elton Park, we have built the fastest animal on the planet, which is a very good oh, well, 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 I can reach speeds about 300 kilometers per hour in full yeah. suit. Okay. Um, that comes later with animals. So at any rate, uh, if they're going to shoot themselves away from the cow pad, they have to, what they do is they track the sun. Okay, these little strands that you saw there will follow the sun, and when they build up enough pressure inside, the spore is released, and the water pressure that was built up in that little bulb thing will push it out several feet away from the cow pad. And then some, some cow will come along and eat that, and maybe eat the spore, and then they'll live, they'll live in, the, in the cow, and, and so on. Uh, but pretty amazing that you know, we don't think of fungi as 
being animated like this, and, and they, they can be. It can be quite interesting. Okay, um, this is a group that used to be in the zygomyces, and they form mutualistic relationships with tree roots. Um, the, uh, you can see over there on the right uh, all of the fungal hyphae that are associated with the roots. These are not parasites. What they do is they increase the surface area of the tree roots and they help the tree to absorb nutrients. In return, the tree provides them with some of the sugar that the tree makes by photosynthesis. Most species of plants have a fungus that they have a, this type of relationship with. They're called mycorrhizae because they live along, down along the, the roots. And here's an example. These are the same plants. These were planted with their normal fungal hope, you know, the fungus that they're with. These were planted in dirt that did not have them. And you can see the difference in growth. Um, this is why when you tr buy a plant at, the, at a nursery and you plant it, um, you can buy really inexpensive ones. They just come in some potting soil usually. But if you buy the more expensive ones, they usually come in containers and they've got tags on them. And what they have done is grown them in soil with the fungal host. And when they put them in the pot, they infuse that soil with it. So when you plant it, its fungal uh, partner will be planted with it. And, they, and usually they will grow better because of that. Now, we, uh, this is only showing you it with one. That's a little pine seedling, basically, uh, there. Uh, just getting started. We also know now that these fungal uh, fungi from one plant will connect with fungi from other plants. And essentially what you have in, a, in a, like the woods out here is you have a complete underground system of fungi that are transferring materials from one place to another. We know that uh, if we feed a plant, a tree, some uh, radioactive uh, uh, carbon, carbon-14, to put into its glucose. That carbon-14 will start to show up in other trees around it. The only way it could get there is through this fungal network. So we, we know that there are plants that, or the trees, that when uh, insects start to feed on the tree, they start to produce some uh, chemicals that they don't normally make because they, you know, they don't want to use the energy. But not only do they produce it, but now trees around them will begin to produce them before the caterpillars even get there. There's some kind of communication going on. It might be airborne in part. We believe a lot of it is through this fungal network. So fungi are really important in, in, a, in, a, in a woods or in a wood in a forest. They're a tremendously large part of that ecosystem, uh, mostly invisible. Don't want to kill them off. All right, the next group are the ascomycetes. Yeah, let's see how much time we have. We've got a few minutes. I'll just introduce this, and then we'll finish fungi up on Monday. So we will we'll have an exam a week from today. Uh, this afternoon, I will uh, any additional questions I'm going to put into the study questions, I'll get that done this afternoon so that you'll have them. All right, so um, this is the largest group. Um, they produce spores asexually and also sexually. Now, when they reproduce sexually, they always form their spores 
in these little sacks that have exactly one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight spores. The sac is called an ascus, and hence the group are called the ascomyces because they form their spores in an ascus. Okay? Um, sometimes these are arranged in a cup-like formation like you see up there. Other times they are not. Uh, but these are always reproduced this way. Now, the reason there's eight spores in here is there's a single diploid cell in there from, or we'll say, you know, two, two fungi. The, uh, the hyphae will merge. They uh, cells with a nucleus from each one will fuse to form a diploid nucleus. And then up in this ascus, it goes through meiosis one time. Meiosis produces how many cells? Meiosis, you get four cells, four haploid cells. And then each of those haploid cells goes through mitosis one time. So I get a total of eight cells. And, and so all the fungi that reproduce in this method are referred to as ascomycetes. Okay. Now, um, these, uh, you'll see these commonly out in the woods, often on trees, uh, uh, so that they're, they're really pretty uh, uh, common. Um, Yeast is a is uh, in this group. Um, Candida albicans is a um, is a causes infections in, in humans uh, and uh, sometimes in infants or people with uh, a suppressed immune system. They will get uh, fungal yeast infections in their mouth. That's called thrush. Uh, it's been long known that infants sometimes get that. Um, truffles, uh, which are really expensive uh, are from this group. Uh, but I want to just show you this last little video and then we'll be back. Incredibly, 80% of all insects live in jungles. Few are more successful than the ants. There can be 8 million individuals in a single hectare. 